Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Southeast Louisiana is home to an unusually wide range of family-owned and operated restaurants, shops, and companies. Some have just started. A surprising number of them are generations old. On this week's show, we look at three different flavors of family businesses in the greater New Orleans area. First, we'll have a taste of Chasey Brothers' spicy Cajun meats and hear the delicious story of their 100-plus-year-old family history from fifth-generation Nicholas Chasey and his dad, Philip. Once we've whittled that ham down to the bone, we'll visit a tortilleria where father-son team Carlos and Will Avalar have created a new family business in a Metairie strip mall. At Maui Tortilleria, it's all about the taste of home. And finally, Brian Batt and Katie Danos join us with memories of Pontchartrain Beach, the amusement park founded by Brian's grandfather that entertained generations of New Orleanians for almost 50 years. It's a real family affair on this week's Louisiana Eats. Out on Jefferson Highway, there's a meatpacking company that's as much of a New Orleans institution as Leidenheimer Bread and Blue Plate Mayonnaise. Can you guess who we're talking about? It's the place where the ham comes from for your perfect ham, poor boy. Chasey Brothers. Sometimes we say the name Chasey. You've had Chasey ham and people say, I don't know, I said the little pig. Oh yes, we've had that product. For over 100 years, Chasey Brothers Southern Style smoked meat products have been staples in homes, grocery stores, and restaurants throughout the South. Parkway Bakery and Dookie Chase Restaurant are just a few of their satisfied customers. I'm going to stay on this side. It's kind of slick, so stay, yeah. stay to this side. Fifth generation family member Nicholas Chasey gave us a tour of their operation, where he and his three siblings maintain the Chasey tradition under the watchful eye of their octogenarian father, Philip. Since 1908, huh? 1908. The business has certainly been through a lot of changes since its humble beginnings selling live chickens in the New Orleans French market. Following our tour of the plant, Nicholas introduced us to the patriarch of the family, his father, Philip. That's my dad. And the two of them filled us in on the remarkable story of Chasey Brothers' meats. My name is Nicholas Chasey, fifth generation of Chasey Brothers Meat Packing Company here in New Orleans. My name is Philip Chasey, and my position is that I'm owner of Chasey Brothers at this time. I'm the fourth generation, and they're the fifth generation behind me. 
1908 is when we really, I guess, started keeping track of everything. But we started out selling chickens, believe it or not, live in the French Quarter. In the French market is exactly how it actually started. I'm 81, so uh, the farthest I can remember was on Decatur and Ursuline. We sold live chickens, ducks, rabbits, geese. I was born in the French Quarter. I went to St. Mary's School around the corner. St. Mary's Italian School. Did you know, you knew your grandfather? I knew my grandfather. I used to help him make chicken coops that they used to go catch your chickens with. When you go on a farm, they had a house, and you used to go catch the chickens on the house and put them in a, put them in the, uh, the cage, to put them on a truck to bring them down here. We were living on Conti Street when we had, as far as live chickens, we were distributing the different people when we brought them in on the truck. Then from Conti Street, we went to, I think it was Governor Nichols, and then we sold dressed chickens out of there. But I used to go to Alawisha School, and after school, I used to go to the business and start cutting chickens and putting them in a box. And that's, I was, I guess, about maybe 15, 16 years old. And you graduated from high school and went straight into the business? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I became a salesman, and then I was going out and sell a product. It was not only chickens, it was eggs, hams. We bought the hams from, from Tupelo, Mississippi. I guess I was in the 20s, my 20s when I was on the street. And who were your customers? At that time, they had a lot of mom and pop stores, I call them, that's, that we used to sell. We had all the restaurants, Antoine's and that we sold to restaurants, and uh, Swagman was a good account for us. Were there any particular customers back in the day that you used to just love to go call on? Well, there was a bunch of customers like that. I mean, you, were, you got personal friendship with them in that, and you go in there to get an order and you, uh, at that time, you used to have other salesmen from Swift, Carterhead, or wherever the packing house was coming from, and you used to have little contests of flipping a current or something to buy a soft drink or something like that. I mean, so it, it goes back a long way. When did the profile of your products, how did that evolve and change? What drove those changes? Well, you had more chicken houses coming and we was a middleman more or less and they kind of went in directly to these big stores and start selling these big stores and the little mom and pop stores wasn't there anymore that I could sell. So then they started doing some beef and then they started doing some cutting and trimming of the meat, making of sausages and stuff like that and it went from there. Then we moved to Galvis and La Perouse. It was an old ice house at one time. And where's that? What part? What neighborhood is that? That's uh, not far from uh, Dookie Chase's restaurant, right uh, up in that area. Yeah. So we were there for a long time, and it was kind of like if you, people hear the name and, and people in the neighborhood, and we used to do hot dogs and stuff like that at the time. Uh, so the kids would come by and they'd get a hot dog, and the kids kind of remembered that. So it was just one of those things. And then uh, a gentleman one day came along and said, you know, we could smoke some hams. And then we started making our own hams on La Perouse and Galvis. Well, the ham is something that you want to, the way we do it, it's an old-fashioned way. It's a whole muscle ham. 
it's not ground up and then put in a foam because every time you look at one of them hams, you see they're all the same shape. Mm -hmm. You know hams ain't the same shape. No, no pigs don't <laughs> no, come in the same shape, do no, they? No, <laughs> no. So, so that's why ours are a little different. Yes, it's different little shapes now and then we, that we keep it in. And uh, that's the hardest part to try to keep that because when you get new employees, you got to form it the right way. We still do it the same way, the way that the product is handled, the way the product's injected, and the way it's smoked, it's still all the same. We haven't changed that recipe. It's uh, the way it's done. And the, the, the brom that it's seasoned with, our flavor and that it's done with is, is our own. It's, you know, it's got a sweet, smoky taste at the same time, where some of them, some hams are, are more salt taken and, you know, have salt flavor and stuff like that. But ours is just, it is what it is. It's kind of like a New Orleans tradition to have that for Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving, that product. Currently, your operation is located out in Elmwood. When did y'all make the move out there? We went from the French Quarter. We moved into an old ice house on Laparouse and Galva Street. We kind of outgrew that neighborhood, and, and then we moved to uh, Julia Street, 2419 Julia Street, right by the Superdome. And then Washington Avenue, we had a plant that we used to take care of all the school beds. Uh, and then the storm came along and wiped us out. So that, that I'm sure that was an absolutely insane time. Um, it was for all of us, but y'all had quite a struggle too. Uh, as I understand, everybody's houses, the factory, everything, boom. Right. So it was kind of like the nuclear explosion and you had to start over. Right. How did y'all set out to do that? Well, we finally got back in after some time, and we was in Baton Rouge, basically, and we kept trying to get back because we knew that we was going to have a mess on our hands. I mean, everybody's refrigerators smelt. We had walk-in refrigerators, so <laughs> it was it's even neat. a bigger mess. Right, Ugh. correct. So, And uh, we did a commercial after saying, if you think your refrigerator stunk, you can just imagine what ours was like. We had two million, two and a half million pounds of meat we threw away. Oh my gosh. You should have smelled that. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't, honestly. <laughs> so my dad at the time uh, was like, um, you know, the Calvary's not coming. What are we going to do here? And, you know, what do y'all want to do? We can basically throw the towel in or we can keep on going. And we, um, we decided that we wanted to continue on. And so he said, nobody's coming to help us. We got to get into it ourselves." It was about nine people that really took us three weeks to clean up. So we got down and we just started throwing everything out, doing, doing what we had to do to sanitize, calling up to see, hey, we want to be back up in an operation. We, we can't wait. And everything was so hard to get people to try to get an answer from, you know, the state and this and everybody else to say, okay, we want to start and operate and you know, get back in operation. What do we need to do? We're cleaning up stuff. We're repairing the roof. We're getting refrigeration. We're getting everything done. And the big thing was my dad was big driven on trying to get some normalcy back to the people in, in, in New Orleans. And, you know, if you get, if you have Thanksgiving, that's what we were shooting for is to have the product back on the table for people for Thanksgiving. So that's what we shot out to do. And that's what we did two weeks before we were back up and running. Well, that's kind of a miracle. How did you get the equipment and everything? Well, it was a lot of work. And we, when we had like seven, we had family members and, and, and about four or five friends of the family that were there every day and, and pushing through and, and getting it done. And just, you know, basically we was on focus on a game plan and we had to, we had to get it done. So we just got it done. 
So uh, you've been working in the business, well, let's see, about 75, 76 years now, huh? Somewhere in that neighborhood. If you started I, when you... I, <laughs> I hear you come here every day. Yes, I do. I come here in the morning. I'm starting to leave a little early in the evening, though. Oh, you're cutting yourself a little slack after all these years. Do you suppose you'll ever retire? What would I do? Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been such an honor and a pleasure having a chance to sit down with you. Keep pushing. That's all I can say. Philip Chasacy and Nicholas Chasacy, fourth and fifth generation owners and operators of Chasacy Brothers Meats. Coming up next, we talk tortillas with father-son duo Carlos and Will Avalar of Maui Tortillas. But first, are all tortillas created equal? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. And now, from red beans to roux, Camellia Brand has a seasoning mix designed to simplify your dinner time in the kitchen. Red beans, white beans, gumbo jambalaya, and dirty rice mixes are authentically crafted with the quality ingredients you expect from Camellia Brand. Each mix offers versatile options for your family's dinner table. Whether vegan or vegetarian or flexitarian, Camellia's got the mix. Now available on grocery store shelves everywhere. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Are all tortillas created equal? If your orientation to tortillas involves something crunchy from a box for taco night, have we got news for you. Corn tortillas were an essential part of the Mayan and Aztec diet for centuries before the Spanish explorers arrived. The Spanish word for cake is torta, believed to be the origin of the word tortilla. With countless varieties of corn native across South America and Mexico, corn tortillas have always had a strong regional element with taste and thickness varying by locale. 
Although generally regarded today as a wrapper, something to encase your taco or burrito ingredients, traditionally tortillas were used as table bread, something you eat with your meal and use to sop up every bit of gravy goodness. Europeans believed corn was only good for cattle, so they brought wheat to the New World, and consequently, sometime during the 16th century, the flour tortilla appeared. One thing is certain. If you have never experienced a fresh, hot corn tortilla straight from the oven, you've never really eaten a tortilla. Don't worry. Will and Carlos Avalar are ready to help you. Let's visit Maui Tortilleria in Metairie to learn more. Hello, my name is Carlos W. Avelar, and uh, I'm here at Maui Tortillerias. And I'm uh, Wilfredo Avelar, uh, chef owner as well as my dad over here at Maui Tortillas. Maui Tortillerias makes fresh, authentic corn tortillas for restaurants and retail businesses in the New Orleans metropolitan area. The simple hands-on operation started back in 2017 when father-son team Carlos and Wilfredo, or Will, started supplying tortillas to some of the best restaurants in New Orleans. When the pandemic hit in 2020, they began transitioning Maui from restaurant supplier to eatery and specialty market. But making fresh tortillas remains the heart of their business. Carlos, what is the reaction that you get from people with your tortillas? You know, this is what really motivates me the most. I have many stories to tell you. One time I have a lady that came in here and uh, as soon as she came in through the door, she started shaking and trembling and almost crying. And I got scared thinking, you know, what's going on with her? She said, this is the smell that I've been wanting to have since I moved to this country 40 years ago, she says. She cried because she smelled the, the tortillas coming right out of the machine, thinking that, you know, that's how she used to have it when she was about six to seven years old in her country back in Mexico. There's nothing like a taste memory like that. Um, for you personally, what does that tortilla represent? To me, it represents the basic staple food in our country, in our culture, and also the history of how the civilization in Latin America was developed around the corn. So that tells me that we are doing something to continue the culture of the Hispanic people here in the in the United States. Even the, the, the American natives have the corn. So uh, it's something that, that really makes us feel very proud. Will, for you, what does the tortilla represent? For me, it represents one of my earliest food memories. I remember growing up and seeing my mom show me how to make the masa, the dough that gets involved with making a tortilla, and then actually the balls of dough and then pressing the balls of dough. And then we would put them on the griddle at home and make fresh corn tortillas for us. So one of my earliest food memories is a tortilla, but not only that, it was one of my earliest cooking techniques that I learned was how to make a tortilla as well.
Before the father and son team went into business together, they were on much different career paths. Carlos was a maintenance supervisor for apartments, planning his retirement. Will was a rising star in the New Orleans culinary world, having worked his way up the ladder in Emeril Lagasse's restaurant group. By 2016, Will was asked to help open at Merrill in New Orleans' warehouse district, where he would become chef de cuisine. They told me, you're going to be the next chef in the company, and uh, we have some plans for you. And they did. And it was great, the offer that came with uh, opening up Merrill Restaurant, which was a uh, uh, a new concept that he had never opened up and done before. Uh, it's something that I don't think the city had seen as well as far as like the variety of food that was offered. But for me, more than anything, the, the learning experience that I got to open up a new restaurant with Emeril Lagasse as a chef de cuisine was unparalleled. You couldn't compare it to anything else that you get in the industry. I have brought so many people to their restaurant and say, this is my son, this is my son. He had a big cut out of his face and, and, and body in the store. And I say, look, he's like a big movie star now. So he made me very proud. And uh, the whole family is very proud. And actually, not just the family, my friends, the community, even I get compliments from my country that they are so proud of him. I get so many compliments that uh, it makes me feel bigger than what I am right now. As Will explained to us, it was during this time that he stumbled upon the first iteration of Maui Tortillerias, opened by Mexico natives Alma and Julio Grajales. When I was getting ready to open up for uh, Merrill Restaurant, uh, we were looking for a, a fresh corn tortilla for a taco that we were planning on putting on the menu. I stumbled upon this location by bringing my kids to school one morning and looked and saw the sign It says Tortilleria and I had never seen one in town before. So I, I did the block, came back around, knocked on the door, came in and, and got a little sample, brought the sample to uh, the team that we were preparing for uh, to get the menu ready. And then we started using the tortillas throughout. About maybe eight months after that, the owners, the prior owners of Maui came and asked me if I would be interested in purchasing the business from them. It was a good price, so we took the leap of faith and purchased the business. My son said, you know, you always wanted to have your own business. I said, well, let's build something for us uh, to leave a legacy in the city, to try to serve the people here for something that they are lacking of, which is fresh corn tortillas in the city. So we bought the business in May of 2017, and we had been running it since. And now, uh, you know, I left the restaurant in May of 2019. So how did this decision come about that you were going to leave this pinnacle of your chef positions at that time and come here to work with your dad? Right at the six months, I think it was more of a feeling that I just had and like an innate like gut feeling that told me I need to be there. You know, my dad's working full time and he's also working at night at the bakery. I'm working full time. I'm probably like delivering one day a week. And I wanted to ensure that this business stayed successful because it became more successful than I, th I think we anticipated at first. Um, so to do that, I had to invest my time 100 percent in the bakery and make the decision to leave the restaurant 
Will, did it take some persuading to talk dad into letting you come here full time? I don't think it was persuading. I think more than anything, it was back and forth conversations of, you know, taking into consideration all uh, the consequences of me leaving uh, or just me coming here and, and running this bakery. It was very scary for me uh, for two reasons. One, I thought that probably could be a step backwards in, for him, not for me. But the other thing was the, the expectations. You know, this is a very small business. We're just starting up. And I know he was now a big figure here in the, in, in the community, in, in the city. And I thought that, uh, you know, he might be missing all the other stuff that he's been recognized for in the city. At the end of the conversation, it was always like, if you want to come, I'm obviously never going to say no to my son to come work with me. I was, I was very scared to jump ship and, and come here. At first, it was like, man, like, yes, I'm used to having like a big grand kitchen, you know, all 15 cooks at any time for my disposal. Um, but what has really surprised me from that move has been the fact that I, it's it's very humbling for me. It's very like I have more of a connection with the product. I have more of a focus now to see what Maui can become and from what it is now and then what it can be eventually. The idea for me was that one day my sons will have something that they can leave as a legacy for their kids. And uh, uh, I like the idea when he said that he wanted to work full time here because I wanted him to have the taste and the love for the business, not just because daddy did it, no, because he wanted it to do it. So when he told me that, uh, there were two things that I saw on my favor. One was that I was gonna spend more time with him. You know, we're gonna have a better relationship, which we already do. And the second one, that he was gonna have a more time for his kids, which, you know, working in the uh, restaurant industry, he had to spend all the holidays at work and many, many nights. So I say now he will have more time to enjoy the kids like I enjoy him. Well, what has the reaction been from your peers in the culinary community? It's going great now. I think at first everybody was super shocked that I, I left the, the position that I was in to come to our bakery. But I, I think more of the shock was that nobody knew that that's what I was going to do. Nobody knew that, nobody foresaw it. For me, it was more of a full circle kind of thing. Uh, like I told you, one of my first memories, food memories, is through masa, through corn masa and a tortilla and how to make it. I went through a huge culinary adventure and uh, gained a lot of knowledge working with Emerald and got back to a tortilla now. And now it's my own business with my dad and it's something that I can get my kids more involved with. Uh, they're here making the dough with us sometimes, selling the product. They want to know about everything. They want to be part of everything, which we have to be very careful because, they, you know, being boys, they, they are more adventurous and they want to try almost everything. They, I want, they, they know better than us. They say, I know it. I can do it. I can do it. There are three passions that I want to instill in them. One is the family passion. Always be, you know, close to your family. Secondly, be the passion of something that you really love. In my, in my son's case, is food. So I say, you know, stay with that, stick with that. And the third passion is to make sure that you serve the community. 
And by uh, having this business, we are serving the community. And that's the three passions that we try to instill in our grandkids and uh, my children also. Such an honor and so much fun to spend this afternoon at the Torteria with you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Poppy. That was Carlos and Will Avalar, the father-son team behind Maui Tortillerias in Metairie, where corn tortillas and cooked specials are made daily. For more information, visit MauiNola.com. Hi, I'm Brian Batt. And I'm Katie Danos. And together we wrote the book Pontchartrain Beach. A family affair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we won't do this the whole interview. Longtime friends and business partners, Brian and Katie, share a love of antiques, art, and all things Big Easy style. They co-own Hazelnut, a home furnishings boutique on Magazine Street, and previously collaborated on a book about New Orleans design. And we still love to do other projects together. Other projects together. We yeah. still, you know, she's like my sister from another mother. So when Brian went through his late mother's belongings and discovered endless memorabilia about his family's amusement park, he reached out to his partner in crime. Together, they researched and wrote Pontchartrain Beach, a family affair. We really enjoyed the process of doing it really full-on together. We holed ourselves up in Katie's home and did it. It was, it, was, it was something. Joining us in the Louisiana Eats studio, both Brian and Katie shared what they learned about the Bat family's beachfront amusement park. We began with its founding in 1928 by Brian's entrepreneurial grandfather, Harry, who started his career working in the family's humble ice business. Like I say in the book, my grandfather was an ice man and he overcameth. Um, he was a visionary. Right. And he just... And he was resourceful. Resourceful. And, mm -hmm. um, and persistent. And persistent. And like one of my favorite things we discovered, he said, what was it? An obstacle is just an opportunity. Right. The story goes is one time he's delivering ice on a horse-drawn carriage, Going down St. Charles, delivering ice, and on the other side, he saw a refrigerator uh, being delivered on a Model T and said, whoops, i got to get out of this business. And now, I don't know if I believe that he would <laughs> ever have been happy and fulfilled just being the Iceman. I, no. I think he, he, had, a, he had a personality for entertainment. Well, he wanted to go to Hollywood. Right. He wanted to go try, move to California and try to get into the movie business. And it was my grandmother that <laughs> said, um, no, you don't. You have a child and a wife and another one on the way or you know, around that time. Right. And he said, she also said, your hair's thinning and look at your nose. Oh. <laughs> oh. So he goes to his father and sweet talks him into leasing mm -hmm. a, an arcade amusement that was, that park. That was sort not of doing so well at the right. uh, Spanish Fort. It was one of Fort. the places that they delivered ice. He's observing, which I think he was a fantastic observer. And he was observing these um, rides and that that could be something they could make a little extra money with and right. tiptoe into. I was yeah. fascinated by that. He acquires, at that very start, the caterpillar, the flying scooter. The bug. The, the bug. bug. It was the, the bug. bug that, that the was, bug stayed re remained forever. the entire time. 
it was really the Chicago World's Fair in 1933 that sort of changed your grandfather's world vision. Mm -hmm. I think so, because that was a major, um, it changed a lot of people's visions. It was a major World's Fair where they were showing new technology and they presented the Zephyr there. Which was a bullet, a very fast train. Right. And also, you know, that there was built on reclaimed land in Chicago. So he was seeing the um, what could be done with land that f- with a different way than its original use. My grandfather said we will take sand in from Florida, right, from the Gulf Coast, and make a beach. And there will be a recreational spot. And, that's and I will make a world-class amusement, amusement park. Make a world-class amusement park. Mm-hmm. Swamps don't always have to remain swamps. I love the fact that he kind of fell into the six or seven rides, and then he decides, I'm going to get myself to the World's Fair in Chicago, and I'm going to learn everything I can. He did the work. He put the work work. in. And he only had an eighth grade or ninth grade education. Your grandparents, they just seemed to be destined to be together because he was a showman, but she was even born on New Year's Eve, which sort of gave her a big reason for a party. I was fascinated by Marguerite because uh, what they married young, Very young, 16 and 19 or 16, 16 and 21. Yeah. But from the get-go, she was game. She went back and forth to the Spanish fort. She, all of her sisters worked um, at the the beach. And whenever he traveled, he, Harry went to every World's Fair, every local fair, regional fair, across to other international fairs, and she always went with. She loved her modern home. Yes. Which was so deco inspired. And so she, I don't think that's typical in that era in New Orleans to pick up and go constantly like she did. Then Even she to be a working a, woman. To be a working woman, Well, exactly. she also had a suitcase always packed. Yes. She said, just in case Harry got the call, she was there too. She was and in a, the diaries, she'll write about helicopter rides or the newest ride in Germany. She did all of it. And yet she's raising a family herself. Mm-hmm. They had two yeah. boys together, mm-hmm. Harry Jr. and John. My dad. <laughs> and... There was really a serious family work ethic going on because everybody worked in the business. Harry had a very strong work ethic. I mean, it was your mother and your um, Aunt, Faye. And Aunt Faye that begged for the first time for the men to have a day off during season. Yes. During season, they worked seven days a week yes. from 10 o'clock in the morning to 1 o'clock at night. In, in the, the morning. In the morning. I just did think it was hilarious that the two wives of the sons had to go petition because <laughs> there were five there were five children between, between. the two families yeah. then, and and you didn't see your dad much, huh? Uh, never, barely in the summer. I would go to the beach, you know, to hang out or have lunch with him, or sometimes we'd have dinner. Or the Fourth of July, would we'd go on the stage and watch the fireworks. But if Dad had to be called home from work during the summer, <laughs> watch out. Because that, that we, we were in trouble. And during the winter, all my friends like, what does your dad do? Well, they maintained everything. They would travel to find the new rides. They would, you know, Hire. that, you know, get book it, all the book, acts, book everything, the musicians. make sure everything was ready for the season. So um, it was very interesting because we never took a summer family vacation. Mom took us, but my father, unfortunately, never got to go with us. But it was, a, you know, you look back and it's like it's perfectly normal. You know, I thought everyone had a roller coaster in their backyard. Don't take the sun, let's 
winter when the amusement park is closed, it was sort of your personal playground. You got to ride your bike out there. Would, what, what, tell oh, me about when... I would get in trouble. I mean, one time I decided I could scale the first big dip of the Zephyr. And I got almost, you know, three quarters up when I hear my father screaming, get your down, you know, you're out of your mind. Brian, you snuck into the beach after hours? No, no, that was my brother. That was Jay. And he got Jay in so snuck- much trouble. He On a double date. On a double date, and they went under, there was an entrance under the second dip or the first dip of the roller coaster to get into the back, you know, the back, you know, workings of the park. And I think he tipped the night doorman. You know, to let him in because he, well, he knew him. He went in and turned on some of the rides. I mean, they, first they did the bumper cars, and then he rode the Zephyr because he knew how to work it. And my father, I think, you know, if he didn't, he had already had a had a heart attack. It might have given him another one. And uh, fortunately, Jay was grounded for the entire summer, and his not just grounded, grounded for the entire his entire punishment. He couldn't do anything. Except show up at Punch Train Beach at sunrise. 6 a.m. And he had KP and garbage duty. Now, you can imagine what that smelled like in the dead of summer. Especially, you know, sometimes people ride those rides and some things come up (laughs) and go out. So that was his job for the entire summer. But Jay said the hardest thing was having to apologize to his uncle. Did you ever use your access to Punch Train Beach to curry favor? You know, I kind of used it really as a litmus test to see who my real friends were. There were some kids that wanted to be my friend because they wanted to go to Pontchartrain Beach. And there were others that just wanted to be with me because, well, don't it? I think I'm a nice guy. And if they wanted to play and climb trees or whatever else to do, or ride bikes and everything, you know, we were buds. But otherwise, yeah. And your cousins, I thought they verified, um, and Jade mentioned this too, that they had very strict rules that they were not to cut in line. Oh, yeah. They were not to try to have favoritism. And they really didn't push it too hard any more than the other employees' children. Because exactly. tell about the quarters, the painted quarters. It's one of my most favorite stories. Well, in the um, in the in the Penny Arcade, we would love to because it was air conditioned, you know. And after riding, you want to get cooled off. Um, but we love to play the games, and they would take quarters, and mine were red, and yes. Jay's were blue. They would paint them, so they could keep track of what was the actual money going in and, and out. And same for some of the, the and some of the employees' children would get to do that too. But we could play as many as we wanted, but we could only use. Our colored quarters. Our like mine were red, Jay's was blue. I think someone else's was right. green. And at the end of the night, they would collect them, and you would use them. Use again. them again. You know, the recycle. But it was. Um, I look back and I look down that midway, and I can just see it in my mind: all the lights and the neon and the shine and the chaser lights and the music playing, and it was just, it was just so wonderful. Moving on out to Pontchartrain Beach, got my baby by my side. After a break, Brian Batt and Katie Danos continue with Pontchartrain Beach memories. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Moving on out to Pontchartrain Beach, get it all together there.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Brian Batt and Katie Danis, co-authors of Pontchartrain Beach, a family affair. The book chronicles stories of the Batt family beachfront amusement park. Our conversation continues with Brian's memories of a popular arcade attraction. Brian? Yes? Tell me about you and the stripper. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> The stripper was one of the games at um, in 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 the uh, in the arcade, and of course I loved the fortune teller and I loved the pinball machines, especially after the Who's Tommy came out and Pinball Wizard by Elton John. And there was the guy, the OK Corral guy, but kind of nestled in towards the back was this game called the stripper, and it had this little joystick, pardon the phrase, and uh, with a little red button, and they would project. Somehow inside these pictures, these, you know, sexy 70s, you know, foxes. And every time you clicked on the little target, a portion of the clothes would come off. And, I mean, you think about it now, there's no way this would fly. And I just I just had a very quick thumb. And I was like the master of this game. And um, my mother got wind of it, and that game was quickly removed from the uh, from the Penny Arcade. But very funny, I mentioned it, and John George sent me a picture on Facebook, uh, a PM private message me, an actual picture of the game. Oh, yes. my goodness. I, yeah. th- I think you need one again. May as well just <laughs> you know, think it, what a fun thing it that was. It was a fun, be. you know, for, you know, a tween boy. Let me tell you, I was, I was popular. They would gather around. Let's go to Pontchartrain Beach. Good, clean, wholesome family fun. Let's go to Pontchartrain Beach. A couple of other things that really were um, interesting to me, and, and Brian and I marveled at it, was the fact that the teenage movement of that era, that there was no social media. No cell phones, no pay phones, really. And you could drop, kids would either be dropped off and picked up, but they would find each other. Yeah. Without a lot of orchestration, yeah. without or a lot meet of planning. Somebody new. Or meet somebody new. One thing that just, just reminded me of one of my favorite stories that didn't make the book, it came in too late, was one of my friends uh, from the Sacred Heart. She said, We used to ride the Sky Ride and like drop our clog at a cute guy. You know, they would drop, remember those clog shoes uh-huh. that everyone was wearing in the 70s? Drop it. I'm like, we'll be right down. Like, it was, that, it was a way that they could meet the guy, which I thought was so funny. A lot of romance. A lot of innocence, you know, and, and you know, the songs that played. And uh, just, it was just a wonderful summer experience. We did put a poll out in social media. Tell us the summer song of your day. 
and the songs. Oh I mean, my gosh. We would start Long, singing. Cool woman in a black dress. Well, you like, got the whole list. What's in the yeah, book. the whole the list is in the book. <laughs> it's WDIX Appreciation Night at Pontchartrain Beach, Thursday night, August the 31st. You'll see the greatest recording stars in person. How in the world does it end up that your grandfather Harry throws a birthday party for Elvis at Ships Ahoy? <laughs> The first trip, Elvis played the stage um, in 52, was it? 55? 55. I can't remember exactly. On the exactly. Hillbilly Dumpling Tour. the Hillbilly tour. Dumpling Tour. He was nobody. I mean, not nobody. He, had he a was becoming, becoming something, something, but he was not Elvis. He wasn't Elvis. He was not even top billing. And four months or five months later, right. um, Hound Dog hit. Came out. Mm-hmm. And then he was like crazy. You know, everyone was saying, oh, it's the devil's music. Oh, my God, he's shaking his hips. Oh, my God. And my grandfather's always quoted as saying, this Elvis kid is great. He's a good, he's a fine young gentleman. He's just, you know, dancing and doing his thing. And later that year, he Elvis had such a good time at the beach, he brought his girlfriend from— As a visitor. As a visitor. And a celebrity on the Midway. On the Midway, brought his girlfriend from Ocean Springs. Yes. <laughs> and he, we had a party there. It was a big party. And, of course, my grandfather invited everybody, extended family. And my cousin Donna remembers just losing, everyone losing the their mind. that, that cousin, ev- The right. teenagers were just, Elvis is in the building. Um, and Elvis wanted fried chicken. He wanted so fried chicken. So that sort of shaped the party. That Yeah. So he it was much more casual. Chicken. He loved fried chicken. So that's why. Now, everybody remembers Bally High. It was icon. It was an iconic eatery. Tell me what, what you believe are the important think, stories about uh, Bally High. I think something that was a big impact on my thinking was the fact that Harry was ahead of that type of craze that really was in California. And in New Orleans, we're so traditional about our classic restaurants, Antoine's as or Galatois as an especially event. Especially at that time. Especially at that time. And it was the those are the places you would go for big events. But in it just like he was always ahead of the curve or on trend, and he created this swanky, very different come all the way out to the lake experience that was nothing was nothing there was nothing else like that here and it really was the cocktail set and wedding events proms dates it was the place the place it was a very very and it was also great because parents, the parents could drop their kids off <laughs> and then they could sit in and have these crazy cocktails and some it was of the really some cool. of the ingredients you cannot get anymore because i think they're illegal <laughs> but it was a wonderful escapist beautiful place i believe if you're Anyone like us who are born and bred in New Orleans, who grew up with Pontchartrain Beach, you have almost a visceral reaction when you go through the pages of the book because it brings back things that you've forgotten, Mm -hmm. childhood memories. It's very funny. People come up to us now saying, well, why didn't you call me about my story? And I'm like, I don't know you. How would I have known? You know, we had it all over social media. I think, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook and Instagram and everything. But there are these other websites and all these other, you know, tributes to Pontchartrain Beach. And we put it out there. If you have a story or, you know, or some interesting tidbit that you'd like to share. And people really did reach out. And one of my favorite things is that they're all positive. That was Brian Batt and Katie Danos, co-authors of Pontchartrain Beach, A Family Affair. 
it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.